Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I would ask that you please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we'll be at this morning. Well, you know, it's our great joy that Christmas is coming soon. Christmas is upon us, and the celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the baby in the manger, is readily underway. As you think about Jesus' birth, I want to ask you this question this morning to start our time. Was the incarnation of Jesus intentional on God's part, or was it an afterthought? Was it random, or was it planned? Was God the Father able to orchestrate all the details in the birth of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Did the Father know precisely when and how the birth of Messiah would take place? I know you. I know you very well. And I know that you know that Jesus' birth was both planned and promised by God down to every single detail, every detail. What do we call God's ability to plan, promise, and perform all that He desires? We call that God's sovereignty. Christmas is a story that powerfully displays God's sovereignty. Do you truly know God's sovereignty? Do you understand it? You must. Knowing God's sovereignty is an extremely important blessing to you. And you might ask, why? Why is God's sovereignty important to me? How does it affect my life? Here's why. The world in which you live is filled with chaos, violence, lies, immorality, tyranny, idolatry, rebellion, and that's all just in your own heart this morning. It's outside the walls, it's impacting you daily, shows up in your phone, your email, phone calls you receive. It's built up in your heart, the sinfulness. And either you believe that God is so powerful that none of these evils can stop His plans, or you believe that evil is bigger than God. What you believe about the sovereignty of God directly affects how you behave. What you believe about the sovereignty of God directly affects how much joy and peace and love will, understand, will carry you along through this life, that will attend you in this life. At Community Bible Church, we know God's Word declares that God is totally in control of all things, that He is absolutely sovereign. He planned everything that is happening for our good and for His glory. We treasure the fact that just as the God of the universe planned and promised the details of Jesus' incarnation, so too He planned the details of our very lives. You might not want to say amen to that when you came in this morning based off of the things that you've been experiencing over the course of the last week or month or what we've all gone through in the last couple of years. But I believe it's worthy of an amen because He is in charge of every detail that attends every single one of your lives. There's nothing missing here. And this gives us great hope because we know that whatever trial we are facing today, God has promised to make it work out well for our good and for His glory. We will endure, brothers and sisters. We will press on because the God who called us is faithful. He promised to send a Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ shows up as a baby in a manger. It's exactly the way that it goes down according to His promises and His plans. And where can we see God's faithfulness so clearly? Right here in this, in the promises of Christmas found in Genesis. Do you know God's big, sovereign Christmas promises in Genesis? You must, and I must show them to you today. The promises of God are not like the promises of men. Are you familiar with the promises of men? Wives, you're told by your husband, hey, you know in that week that I have off in December because we're not having the men's breakfast, I'm going to finish the bathroom remodeling project. There's still going to be one working toilet in the house in January. You tell your wives, I'll take out the trash. But often that doesn't happen. You get caught up in other things. You tell your wives, brothers, you do this, we'll go out for dinner after the big game. But the game goes into overtime and dinner's all but forgotten about. (laughs) These are the promises of men and they are prone to failure. I would love to promise my wife and kids, hey, you know, sons, daughters, wife, I'm going to get six tickets to see the new Seattle hockey team, the Kraken, play the Toronto Maple Leafs in Seattle next Sunday night. Pack your bags. We'll stay there in a five-star hotel, and honey, just for you, I'm going to bring the trailer. And before we leave Seattle, 
we're going to go to Ikea and we're going to fill that trailer with everything your heart delights in. Now, these would be great promises. The question is, can I guarantee and deliver any of them? Can I guarantee them? What if the Kraken tickets are too expensive? What if Snoqualmie Pass gets covered in three feet of snow? What if I forget to have our COVID status tested 72 hours prior to the hockey game? What if Ikea is closed for remodeling? What do we know about the best-made plans of men? They're prone to failure because we don't have power, knowledge, sovereign control of all things. We are limited, finite, extremely finite in strength and knowledge and resources and in time, not to mention we have no control over the actions of others. Do you know how each driver will respond to falling snow on Snoqualmie Pass? Furthermore, we don't really even have control over ourselves. How do I know how well I will feel about going there Sunday afternoon to be at the hockey game Sunday night, especially if Gonzaga loses to Texas Tech on Saturday afternoon? I might still be crying myself. Our best-made plans are never guaranteed. Consider your marriage. Was your marriage sunshine and lollipops from dating to engagement to wedding and honeymoon and even your first child? Absolutely not. I don't think anybody wants to raise their hands for that one. You probably experienced a, a few rough spots along the way, which is why Paul Tripp wrote a book on marriage titled, What Did You Expect? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, God is using the whole of life to teach us what we are not in control of. We're made in his image and likeness, but we got no control. We're totally dependent on him. He is in control. We have zero control and zero ability to make promises, but the promises of God are exactly the opposite. Everything we lack, God has in perfection. He has ability, power, control. He has these to 100% guarantee whatever he wants to do. What better place to see this, to see the power and control of God and his sovereignty in the, than in the birth of Jesus Christ? So you're in Luke 2? That's where I want you to be, Luke 2. Read with me Luke's account of the birth of Jesus and consider all the details, the small and the large, that attend Jesus' birth. And allow your mind to wrestle well with the fact that God sovereignly controlled all of these details. Luke 2, chapter 1, Luke says this, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they, said, when, when they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. The incarnation of the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a story about the sovereignty of God. It's a story of humility, of grace, of love, of redemption of the creature by the Creator. It's a story of God's glorious promises coming true as seen even in the testimony of those shepherds. They found truth in the words of the angels. And how far back do God's promises of Jesus' birth go is the question for us this morning. 
For how long has God promised to send a Savior? How much of God's sovereign power and control are on display in this moment at the incarnation of Christ? R.C. Sproul said, There's not one piece of cosmic dust that is outside the scope of God's sovereign providence. Such is the case in the story of Jesus' birth. Every detail was orchestrated, was intentional, and was designed by God. God's authority, his ability, his power and control are on full display in the account in Luke chapter 2. Especially in this. Jesus' birth was promised by God 4,500 years before it happened. God's sovereignty is most clearly seen in his glorious promise to send a Savior in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God promised to send a man to save sinners and end the devil's reign of death. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, where we need to see the genesis of Christmas. God promised a Savior. Yes, God's sovereignty is fully on display in Luke chapter 2. And how much more will you understand God's power and control when you read his promises to send Jesus in Genesis chapter 3? This little bundle of preciousness in Luke 2 is prophesied in Genesis 3. Mary's baby has a bigger background than Bethlehem, and the meaning of the manger goes back to the mess we find in Genesis 3. My delight this morning is to show you the Genesis of Christmas. I must show you three introductory promises in Genesis that illuminate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We must turn the spotlight now on the sovereignty of God in the birth of the Savior. And you will rejoice in the sovereign control of God when you understand God gave three guarantees in Genesis that anticipated the arrival of the Messiah. And so what three introductory promises in Genesis illuminate the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Well, this will serve as an outline for us this morning, these three introductory promises. The first is found in Genesis 3. It is the promise of a man to crush Satan. That's the first promise. The second promise we'll find in Genesis 12, the promise of a man to bless the nations. And the third promise is in Genesis 49, where we will find the promise of a man to reign forever. The promise of a man to crush Satan, the promise of a man to bless the nations, and the promise of a man to reign forever. These are the promises of God in Genesis for Christmas. Not only must you know these promises and And the reasons for these promises, you must know the sovereign ability of God to plan, to promise, to perform all the desires of his heart according to his free will. Now, that's one of the big challenges as a pastor. I hear a lot, people want to highlight the free will of man. That's problematic here. That's problematic. Because when I read this book, all I see over and over again is the free will of God to do whatever he wants to do. So that's what I'm going to preach to you today. I'm going to preach to you the free will of God to do whatever he wants to do on his time frame. Brothers and sisters, Christmas begins in Genesis. As we see, point number one in your notes, the first of three introductory promises in Genesis that tell us God's sovereignty and his love for all of humanity. So we see number one in your notes, the promise of a man to crush Satan in Genesis 3. The first of three introductory promises in Genesis, the promise of a man to crush Satan. This is Christmas at the beginning. You're in Genesis 3. Now, I'm going to take for granted that you know Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that you know Genesis 1-27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And Genesis 1-31, which says, after six days of out of nothing, ex nihilo creation, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was, say it with me, very good. That's right, very good. Chapter 2 goes into greater detail about the sixth day of creation when God made Adam and cared for him so much that he gave him a garden to enjoy, two jobs to perform, and instructions to live by, saying in chapter 2, verse 16, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. These commands are gracious and they are generous. What a simple way for God to say to him, I'm God and you're not. That one tree, don't touch it. Don't eat from that tree. Very simple way. They clearly, these commands do, indicate that Adam is not a robot. He is a free will being whose free will is obligated. It is bound to do the obedience that is required to a gracious creator who has made a command. 
If you want to live, if you want joy, if you want life, if you want peace and love, then you will do the obedience required. If you choose the opposite, you will have death. It's been made very clear to him. You are a free will being. Moreover, God graciously made for Adam a helper, a wife who Adam called Eve. Now, you didn't get to choose your wife's name, but he did. And that's just fine with God. That works. Everything here is so good. It's so right. The story should stop. But it doesn't. It doesn't stop here. Chapter 3 is where we run into the train wreck, where the story goes from good to bad, from praise to problem, from calm to curse. You can see it here as we read in the text in Genesis 3, verse 1, which tells us, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And this serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the, tree, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And immediately you wonder why. You wonder what's going on here. I thought that everything was good, very good. Where did the serpent come from and why is he trying to deceive the woman? You must have these questions in your head. And that's great. They're great questions. Hold on to them for a moment. I'll answer these questions, but I want to give you the rest of the story first. Because Eve was tempted into sin by Satan at this very moment. She did take and eat of the forbidden fruit and she shared it with her husband who ate willingly with her. This is the fall of mankind. The first act of rebellion by two creatures made in the image and likeness of God. How will God respond to Adam and Eve and even to the serpent? We don't have to wait for long to find out. We can read in Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So let's stop right here. God goes on to specifically punish Adam and Eve for their rebellion. These punishments have been inflicted upon every generation of humanity. The labor of men being difficult and the labor of women in childbirth being difficult. Because we all would have rebelled against God just like Adam and Eve. And don't kid yourself and think that you wouldn't have. That's pride, and that's exactly what they fell into as well. So we're all just like them. They are all our, our physical and spiritual grandmother and grandfather. These punishments then from God are just. They are right, good, and necessary punishments of God. In fact, for God to be God and for God to be good, their rebellion required punishment. Heaven forbid that God deny himself and not punish them like he said he would. Heaven forbid he not do that. He must. God's nature obligates him to apply just punishment to this creature of his. True to himself, God did punish Adam and Eve and Satan. And yet look at the punishment that God gives to Satan. Consider all that is bound up in Genesis 3.15. Speaking directly to Satan, God says in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This text is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first gospel right here in Genesis 3.15. This promise is the genesis of Christmas. If you're going to understand the birth of a baby Jesus, you need to understand Genesis 3.15. Let's consider then the text. Enmity, what is this? Enmity is hostility. It is hatred, fighting and strife, which is the opposite of Satan's desire for relationship with Adam and Eve and their kids. At this point, Satan hates God and wants to make a united, rebellious army out of the image bearers of God, proving how much he hates God. Leon Morris says, when Satan deceived Adam and Eve, he probably believed that he had won the allegiance of the first man and first woman, and therefore also the allegiance of all their descendants. Satan needed Adam and Eve and their kids, strictly speaking, because 
He had no seed. He was incapable of procreation. Notice that God made Satan a free will being with personhood. He has intellect and emotion and will, and yet he was not made in God's image and likeness, nor was he pinned on the earth by gravity, nor was he given the ability to procreate. The word seed in the text certainly is filled with biological connotation, and yet it cannot be taken literally because neither Satan nor the woman, strictly speaking, produce biological seed. This demands that we understand seed spiritually. Spiritual children are in view. Satan's spiritual children would now be all of those born of Adam and Eve. And everybody said, ouch. The angels. How many of the angels were born, created evil? How many? None of them. How many human beings born evil in their heart? All. Ouch. And yet, we find in the text that even with this consistency across all of humanity, humanity would not be a united rebellious army for Satan of God's image bearers. In the text, God assures Satan in this moment, strife and conflict would mark Satan's relationship with all of humanity. Inasmuch as all of the descendants of Adam and Eve would be born spiritually children of the devil, many would not remain children of the devil. Those are the people among whom you sit today. Yes, Satan won the battle of recruiting for his spiritual rebellion army, but he would not win the war for the souls of God's elect. The reason for Satan's failed rebellion is here as well, in God's first Christmas promise. Moving from the general fighting and disunity that would mark Satan's relationship with the seed of the woman, God turns to the promise of a special fight between Satan and a specific man. Who is the specific man of Genesis 3.15? Wayne Grudem says in Genesis 3.15, the curse of the serpent includes a promise that the seed of the woman, one of her descendants, would bruise the head of the serpent, but would himself be hurt in the process. A promise ultimately fulfilled, says Grudem, in Christ. This third person singular pronoun, he, in your text at Genesis 3.15, is a direct reference to the baby Jesus. It is he who must come to fight against the enemy of our souls, who is Satan, who would be struck on the heel, Jesus would be, by Satan, but who would also deliver, Jesus would, the death blow to Satan's head. Why did it need to come to this? Why did it need to come to this? Why did God the Son, Jesus Christ, have to enter into his creation to save us from Satan? Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. Brothers and sisters, Satan is the deceiver. He is the father of lies, the accuser, the devil, the tempter, the prince of darkness, and the god of this world. He's the enemy of your souls. As a pastor, one of the things that's extremely challenging is to find out how many distractions you have in your life that peel you off and take you over there and have you doing this and that and the other thing when you and I know there is a spiritual war going on. And we're so distracted. The enemy of your souls is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you're playing baseball. And you're playing basketball. And you're playing soccer. And some of you are playing pinochle way, way too much. That's me. That's me. There's a spiritual war. This is the guy. That's why this is so critical. This is the guy here. He's mentioned 27 times in eight Old Testament books. And when you think about the size of the Old Testament relative to the New, that doesn't sound like a lot. And yet when you get to the New Testament, he's mentioned 74 times and at least once by every author in every book in the New Testament. Is his presence important in your scripture? You better believe it is. 
The Bible does not mention the day of his creation, but it certainly was not day one. It had to have been after day one of creation. And it certainly had to be before day six. Because day six screams of God's intention to make man in his image and likeness, the high point of creation, creating us, creating humanity. So what happened then in the short period of time? What made Satan hate God and deceive Eve? Why did God allow Satan to tempt Adam and Eve? And how did we get this train wreck in Genesis 3 and then need God's first promise of Christmas in Genesis 3? You're in Ezekiel 28, where God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is declaring destruction on the leader of the city of Tyre. And then separately, in the same chapter, on the king of Tyre. And you will understand very quickly as we read that the king of Tyre could only be Satan, who was the chief influencer of the leader of Tyre and the leader of every wicked and rebellious nation. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says in Ezekiel 28, verse 12, Son of man, that's you, Ezekiel, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, your corruption, your wisdom. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Brothers and sisters, this is a powerful description of Satan himself. God created Satan to be his perfect anointed cherub. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Satan is God's Satan. You got that? Satan is God's Satan. God created Satan to be his perfect anointed cherub. The highest created angel, full of personhood, intellect, emotion, and will. You understand, like I do, the angels are not robots, and yet to be in God's eternal presence, the angels could never rebel. It must be perfection only or punishment. God's design for the angels did not include the extension of grace or forgiveness for transgression. Angelic rebellion meant eternal punishment instantaneously. Angelic obedience meant eternal life in God's presence forever. And we know the story. As is described here, Satan in his pride thought himself better than God and better than God's creation. Unrighteousness was found in him and he led one-third of the angels into rebellion against God. I can only imagine when Satan watched God create man in his image on day six and according to his likeness and Satan saw the weakness and the frailty of Adam's form that Satan got jealous and angry at God. In a moment of angelic pride, perhaps Satan declared to all the heavenly hosts, how dare God make something more valuable to him than us angels? Why place the image of God on a tiny, finite, powerless little man in a garden? God, this is totally unimpressive. This is beneath you. I could do better than this. Whatever Satan's pride looked like, God gives the result in Ezekiel 28, verse 16, saying to Satan, you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. Brothers and sisters, Satan 
is presently the God of this world. And at the same time, can I tell you this? He is absolutely defeated. His head was totally crushed in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ came to steal back everything that the devil thought that he had captured and rid the earth of his scourge. Man's redemption and the end of Satan's rebellion were both prophesied in Genesis 3.15 in God's introductory Christmas promise to send a man to crush Satan. Now some might ask, why did God allow it to happen? Why allow for Satan to tempt Adam and Eve? Why allow the world to plunge into sin and rebellion requiring the incarnation and crucifixion of the Son of God? God never needed, to prom or to, never needed to promise to send Jesus to crush Satan if God never made Satan. Are these your thoughts? Are these your thoughts? Turn your Bibles to Genesis 12. Friends, if these are your thoughts, I need to tell you these are wrong thoughts and wrong questions. Here are the questions that you need to be asking. Is it right for God to create? Is it right for God to create angels and to create men? Should God have gotten into the creation business at all? Why did God create? He created for His glory, right? Is His glory increasing because of His creation? Is it good for God to make free will beings who sin and need His forgiveness and redemption? Isn't it good that God chose in eternity past to share His glory with some of us sinners? Isn't it good? Isn't, isn't God's power infinitely greater than our sin and Satan's rebellion? Is God perfectly able and equipped to deal with the rebellion of his creatures? Is it possible? Is it possible that God used Satan's pride and the rebellion of one-third of the angels and 100% of humanity's rebellion to showcase Jesus' humility, grace, and love for all the saints by coming as a baby in a manger that he might die on a cross to pay for the sins of God's elect children is the possibility. The answer to these questions, brothers and sisters, is yes, 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 and amen. God is a creator just like you. It's a special thing to serve in the children's ministry. This is a recruiting plug for you. Go serve with the two-year-olds. Watch creation happen. You get those little boys in there with the Lego set, and what do they do? They build, 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 build. And the tower gets really high. And then what happens? Some little girl that thinks he's kind of cute comes over and smacks the whole thing down, makes him build it all over again. It is good to be a creator. Do you agree with me? It is good to be a creator. You've seen Antifa destroy everything in the last two years. You've seen it. It's very easy to tear something down. It's very difficult to create. It's good to be a creator. If creation is wrong, then perhaps all of humanity needs to stop procreating. That would be, uh, brothers and sisters, that would never happen. Humanity will never stop procreating because governments count on the next generation to pay the bills. Procreation serves the needs of individuals, societies, Satan, governments, and God's glory. Even in light of the fact that all of us are born corrupted by Satan, we still delight in children because God has the power to save people of all ages from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, regardless of how sinful they've been. It's no wonder that God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Which brings us to the second of three introductory promises in Genesis. The second of three introductory promises in Genesis. Number two in your notes. The promise of a man to bless the nations. The promise of a man to bless the nations. Genesis 12. 
Turn to Genesis 12. We'll see the promise of a man to bless the nations. In 1964, the Chicago Bears finished the season with five wins and nine losses. And they, obviously, needed some help. Where would they turn for help? In 1965, the Chicago Bears looked to rookie running back Gale Sayers for help. He was fresh out of the University of Kansas. Gale Sayers proved to be an excellent decision for the Bears to run at running back. He would go on to set records for touchdowns in a season by a rookie with 22. In fact, in one performance on this day, December 12, 1965, Gale Sayers recorded six touchdowns in one game against the San Francisco 49ers, helping them... Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Hurtful. Helping the Bears to win uh, to, to a, a winning season record of nine wins and five losses. A, a rookie running back turned the whole team around. He would go on to be the youngest player ever inducted into the NF, NH, or NFL Hall of Fame. What's the moral of the story? The man you tap on the shoulder to do the work and lead the team is incredibly important. It's critical to select a highly talented man to do the work. That's how we think. In our humanness, that's how we think. God doesn't think that way at all. He doesn't have to do it that way. He's entirely sovereign over all of us, his creatures. You're in Genesis 12, where we see absolutely no reason existed for God to choose Abram to be the father of many nations, and yet that is exactly what God desired and wanted to do, and exactly what he made happen. God's strength is seen in his ability to overcome the weaknesses of the men he chooses. It's the same reason why it is not a burden to have God allow his son to be born into this world as a helpless infant in a manger in Bethlehem to a teenage mother, because God is sovereignly in charge over all things. Similarly, God placed the burden of nationhood on a nobody named Abram. You're in Genesis 12, where we see the genesis of Christmas in the second promise of God, a promise given to a heathen, pagan, idol worshiper from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Consider then the sovereignty of God in selecting Abram to be the father of the greatest nation in the history of the world, the nation of Israel, to whom the Savior of the world would be born. Read the text with me from Genesis 12, verse 1, where Moses records in Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Consider this promise of God, brothers and sisters. Consider that it is unilateral and nearly unconditional. What is required of Abram, who God would later call Abraham, in this text? Only this, that he go, that he go, that he, what? That he act in faith toward God and God's promises, even God's unilateral promises for him, for his benefit. The promises of provision and protection and a great nation will continually happen when Abraham obediently goes to the promised land. Only a sovereign God can make such unilateral, one-sided promises and keep them. Do you realize that's exactly what we have in the Scripture for us today? The Scripture says to you, repent and believe. And if you trust those words and do them, do the obedience to those words, where will you end up at the end of your life? The same place Abraham is going, to eternal life with God forever in heaven. God gave these promises to Abram 4,050 years ago. What's happening with Abraham's descendants today? Well, his spiritual children are all over the world worshiping, even as we are here today gathered at Community Bible Church. His physical children, despite the majority of the nations of the world hating the Jews for over 4,000 years, amazingly, they all are alive and well a great nation on the world stage living in the land that bears their name, even the land that God promised to give Abraham in Genesis 15, the land of Israel. Here's the question. What makes Israel a successful nation today? You realize that just a few years back in 1939 to 1945, Hitler's Nazis in Germany tried to rid the world of Jews, murdering six million of them, right? Over a six-year period. Why have they yet again found a place on the world stage as a great nation? How is it even possibly the case? Is it because Abraham 
was such a fantastic patriarch. Not at all. Israel is sustained even today by the promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And certainly, they are, Israel today, not a God-loving, God-fearing, God-honoring nation. But again, these promises of God are unilateral and they are unconditional. The question for us this morning is, where is Christmas in these promises? You see Christmas in Genesis 12, 3, when God says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here we have to ask the question, how did Abraham bless all the families of the earth? There's only one answer that makes any sense at all. Abraham had no ability to bless the families of the world except in this, in having children. He could only bless the world through a future child, specifically through a son, by being fruitful and multiplying, just like was told to Adam and Eve. Moreover, a son who would accomplish the promises of Genesis 3.15. This is exactly what God wanted to have happen. And he orchestrated it so that it did happen, exactly like he wanted it to. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. The Messiah, the Savior of men, the man promised to crush the serpent, would not just come from any nation on the face of the earth. Now, because of the promises of God to Abraham, Messiah must come from the nation of Israel. But the promised man also could not just be a mere mortal like Abraham and die, and nothing happens after he's dead. He couldn't be like all the rest of us who are filled with sin, who are finite, who are weak and frail and unable to save and rescue ourselves, let alone crush Satan and bless all the nations of the world. He couldn't be like us. Unquestionably, the promise of, to Abraham, in the promise to Abraham, God planned something marvelous, something miraculous, something divine. Brothers and sisters, in the text, God is promising something supernatural to happen. And this is exactly what the nations of the world got. 2,000 years ago at Christmas, when God fulfilled this promise to Abraham in the nation of Israel, when baby Jesus was born to Mary in a manger. You might ask, how did Jesus bless the nations? Well, you're in Philippians 2, where we read in Philippians 2, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, this self-sacrifice, this humble attitude, this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing that he had to clutch onto, that it needed to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is in humility the Son of God laid aside His divine right to continual praise, glory, and honor and all of the perfections of heaven. He laid it aside like a garment, like a heavenly robe, so that He could put on flesh like a garment and take on the form and appearance of a man, even a doulos, a slave, he came in the most humble of circumstances, not choosing to be served by this earth and all of its goodness, but to serve and to give his life a ransom price for many by taking our sins upon him and dying on the cross at Calvary a short 33 years after his birth. Only in Jesus Christ are the nations of the world blessed. Peter preached plainly in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which men must be saved. The second introductory promise of Christmas was God's promise to Abraham that a man would come from him to bless the nations. That promise was delivered by God at Christmas in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did God the Father respond to the humble incarnation of the Son? and his crucifixion and resurrection. Keep reading with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. This is the way the Father responded. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
the Father's response to the Son's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection is this. Jesus is king. He is the greatest king, a humble servant king who crushed Satan, who blessed the nations and defeated death, ensuring that he will reign as king forever, which takes us to our third introductory promise in Genesis. The third point in your notes today, the third introductory promise is the promise of a man to reign forever. Is it the case that even before we leave the book of Genesis, God will promise for a man to reign forever? It absolutely is the case. Genesis 49 is where you turn to see the third of three introductory promises in Genesis, the promise of a man to reign forever. You're turning in your Bibles to Genesis 49. We cannot be surprised that God's solution to crush Satan and end his reign of sin and death and bless the nations must be supernatural. You could say, Oliver, if God's sovereign, then shouldn't he make a man on earth to carry the weight and do the fixing and the, of the broken relationship that man has with God? You could ask that. What would my answer be? No. Our God is a personal God. Our God wanted to do the saving himself. Our God recognized only he has the power to do the fixing. And he was willing. And he did the fixing. The solution had to come from outside of fallen humanity. Because in our fallen state, every one of us dies. We all die. That's the promise of our sinfulness. You don't know the number of your days on this earth. You don't know if you're going to die by COVID or cancer or car accident. And yet God is sovereign. He knows the number of hairs that attend your head. And he knows the number of days that attend your life before there was yet one of them. He has ordered and orchestrated each and every one of your days for your good and for his glory. So when God makes unconditional unilateral, eternal promises, it could only ever be the case that the solution must be an eternal, supernatural solution. Do you want man-made solutions? It's been two years. Do you want man-made solutions? What booster shot are we on? Do you want supernatural solutions? This book tells us the best solutions are the supernatural solutions, the ones that he owns, that he's in charge of. Oh, how we love the supernatural solutions. That's what we see in Genesis 49. What do we need to know about Genesis 49? God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 are added on to in Genesis 15 and 17 and are passed down to his son Isaac and down to his grandson Jacob. Jacob is the man who stayed up all night wrestling with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in Genesis 32:24. after which Jesus changed Jacob's name to Israel. In Genesis 49, Jacob, who is now Israel, is dying. His only desire is to pray over his 12 sons and to pass to them the promises and blessings of the Lord. We read in Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Jacob had given Joseph a very special double portion blessing which traditionally goes to the oldest male, the firstborn. He gave that away in Genesis 48 to Joseph. Because Joseph was found to be more deserving of this blessing than the oldest three sons, Reuben, Simeon, or Levi, because they disqualified themselves in the way that they lived their lives. They were not worthy of receiving the Father's special blessing. You say, worthy of receiving. You understand Joseph and Judah and these special blessings? I fully believe the Holy Spirit would have regenerated these men. And that's why these promises are, are placed on them. It was to the fourth oldest, Judah, that this leadership portion of the firstborn blessing promise goes to. And that's what we read in Genesis 49, verse 8, where Jacob says, Judah, in verse 8, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth are white from milk. Jacob prays for Judah, asking for economic prosperity in the harvest, for grapes, for milk in the cattle, as well as leadership over the house of Israel. These are the promises, these are the blessings placed by Jacob onto Judah. And yet this is clearly more than a prayer, brothers and sisters. The text that we're reading today is a prophecy right here in Genesis 49. The Lord inspired Jacob's prayer for Judah, making it a promise from God. Even the third promise of Christmas in Genesis. And some might ask, why Judah? He committed his share of sins. And if you know Judah's life, you know that's exactly the case. That's true. And yet Judah was the brother who talked the other ten out of killing Joseph and instead sending Joseph off with some slave traders down to Egypt. And when Joseph was ruling alongside the Pharaoh in Egypt and demanded that Benjamin, the youngest brother, stay with him, it was Judah who offered himself as a willing sacrifice and substitute so that Benjamin could return to his father Jacob. Judah had demonstrated repentance and great spiritual maturity that comes when God has given grace and salvation, even spiritual regeneration. And to him also, God allowed Jacob to both pray and prophesy the blessing of spiritual and physical leadership. And that's what you see here. Not only in the fact that the brothers will bow down before him, but more specifically in 49.10. What is so specific about 49.10? Well, you see it there in the text. How does this prayer and prophecy relate to Christmas? Let's talk about it. It relates to Christmas in these three words, scepter, staff, and Shiloh. Scepter, staff, and Shiloh. What's a scepter? A scepter is a sign of kingship, much like a gavel is the sign of judicial authority. God's kings for Israel would now only come from one tribe, Judah. The staff also is a symbol of governance and authority. Never would the staff of authority leave Judah. It would always be in his possession. Israel would have leaders from other tribes. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. Samuel from the tribe of Ephraim. Even King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And yet once King David becomes king of Israel, Israel only had kings from Judah right up until Christmas Day when King Jesus of the tribe of Judah is born. Shiloh arrives in Bethlehem. Shiloh here is a title. It's derived from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Shiloh means the one who brings peace. The Apostle Paul said of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who made both the Jews and the Gentiles into one new man and reconciled them to God. Jesus is Shiloh, the one who brings peace. He is the promised Prince of Peace of Isaiah 9, verse 6. And Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah that we see in Revelation verse, chapter 5, verse 5. It is at Christmas that Jacob's prayer and prophecy over Judah would be fulfilled at the supernatural birth of a baby boy named Jesus to a scared and yet willing teenage mother named Mary 2,000 years ago, which proved the sovereignty of God from Genesis 3. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and let's look at verse 14. Remember, brothers and sisters, over the whole of your life, remember, nothing will stop God's plan to glorify himself. Nothing. And on the way to his glory, God makes promises to his creatures that reveal to us his love and grace that he intends to shower down onto us. Christmas begins in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. This morning I showed you God's sovereign control in three introductory promises in Genesis. 
which reveal the details of the birth of Jesus. These details are meticulous. They are gracious. They are orchestrated. And they are divinely governed. And when you see God's sovereignty here, you must reason from the greater to the lesser. And you must say to yourself something like this. If God is sovereign over 4,500 years of human history, able to send Jesus as promised to the tribe of Judah in the nation of Israel to be an eternal king who will bless all the nations by providing an actual salvation in his blood, thereby also crushing Satan's sin and death, then God is sovereign over my life too. That's you this morning. The incarnation needs to remind you. God is sovereign over my life too. If I say it a third time, you'll say it with me. <laughs> he knows your hurts, your pains, your troubles and your trials. He knows all about your guilt, your shame, your remorse, your regrets, your, your pains, your losses, your temptations. He knows about your triumphs and your successes and your joys. All of these aspects of your life are valuable to God because they continually allow Him to shape you into who He wants you to be which is more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all meant for your good. It is all designed meticulously for His glory. And He knows what's best for you. If the sovereignty of God is a challenge for you, then what I'm going to say next will be the biggest challenge because this is what He's asking for you to do. This is how He wants you to respond. How do you respond to the Advent? How do you respond to the Incarnation? How do you respond to the message that I've preached to you today out of Genesis? Repent for your sins against the God of the universe. Believe His promises. Trust His word. Trust that baby Jesus came to earth to save sinners, even sinners as great as you. And maybe the challenge is, even sinners as little as you. Because whatever little sin you think you've done because you think you're a good person, you're going to stand before the judge. And the judge will not let you off for good conduct. The judge will punish you for the evil you committed. You must repent and believe and trust that this one, this one who came in the, as a baby in a manger, is the one who is the Savior of the world. You're in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Luke 2, 14. When you trust the God who is sovereignly in control of all things, you will declare like the angels, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let us pray. Lord God, you've designed an incredible thing here. It's your plan. It's your story. It's all for your glory. And it is a wonder to us. And it is absolutely marvelous. We know the tenderness of new life. We know the tenderness of a baby. We've seen that. We've experienced that. So weak, so frail, so unable you sent your son to do this, to do flesh like us. You control all the details meticulously. You did this to save some. You did this to save us, your elect children, ones that you'd chosen from before the foundation of the world. And this makes us marvel. We're in awe at what we've seen in the text. Your power, your plan, your providence. And Lord Jesus Christ, we look to you and we look to this season of your advent and your incarnation and we marvel at your humility that you set it all aside, 
that you set aside the glory and praise and honor due your name to come down and save wretches like us. You needed to save none of us to maintain your glory. That's what you chose to do. And for that, we honor you. We turn to you now in song, and we honor you. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen.